prayer. And he confided in me that he was having an affair with another pregnant woman. Both the lady that I worked with and my friend were married. And both were unhappy in their marriage. Both rationalized that the affair was somehow acceptable since their spouses were not living up to expectations. One day, my coworker came to me and said something that I have not forgotten in the 30-plus years that have passed since that day. She came to work agitated, and I asked her what was wrong. She said, and I'm going to change the name from Mr. Nexus to Innocent, she said, Rob is so jealous of Bob. Every time Bob calls the house, or Rob finds out that I'm going to see Bob in any kind of social situation, he gets so jealous, it's just driving me crazy. And I answered her, and I said, well, you are having an affair with Bob, right? Yeah, but Rob doesn't know that. Well, it sounds to me like he might suspect it. And she said, yes, but this jealousy is so irritating. I did my best to make some sense of this, and I finally explained to her that what her husband was expressing was not jealousy in its wrong sense, but what I'm going to call tonight reasonable jealousy. This was his wife, after all, and he had reason to suspect that his wife was sharing the intimacy that should have been theirs together in marriage and reserved for the two of them. She was sharing that intimacy with another man. He had every right to be jealous. What was rightly his, and that's the key idea tonight, what was rightly his, the intimacy, was being taken and enjoyed by someone else. He had every right to jealousy. There are times that jealousy is reasonable. And there are other times that jealousy is clearly not reasonable. In Numbers chapter 11, the Holy Spirit came upon two men, Eldad and Medad, and they began to prophesy. When this happened, someone who saw this immediately ran to Moses and told him about it. Joshua, who was in the room with Moses at the time, got really upset and demanded that Moses put a stop to that. Who are these people to be filled with the Spirit or endued with the Spirit and prophesy? You've got to stop that, Moses. And then Moses answered back, Are you jealous, Hebrew term kana, for my sake? Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. Moses recognized that he had no exclusive right to the Holy Spirit. Joshua's jealousy, in this case, was totally inappropriate. There is a jealousy that's reasonable, but there's also a jealousy that's sinful. Some spouses are jealous for no cause. And this ends up creating a most unhealthy relationship. This would be a sinful jealousy. Jealousy without any cause. Jealousy without a legitimate cause is sinful and often is a result of some sort of low self-esteem on the part of the person who is jealous. 
will show confidence. Now, I want to make one quick note on this. If you find that a spouse is jealous of a relationship that you have with someone else, you better make sure that you're not giving either him or her a reason to be jealous. Now, sometimes that happens, but that happens. Don't give them a reason to doubt your faithfulness, and you won't have to deal with jealousy. So we need to be careful there. I always ask this in counseling situations when this comes up. I say something like, have you given her a reason to suspect that you've been unfaithful? Now, if you have, then don't complain that they're being jealous of you. But if there's no reason whatsoever, then it's the jealous party that has the problem. I remember talking to a lady about this. She was upset again that her husband was really jealous. So I said, have you given your husband a reason to be jealous? And she said, oh, well, I guess he says there's a reason. I said, well, what, what does he say the reason that he's jealous is? She said, well, I like to go clubbing. She's a married woman. She has children. She said, I like to go clubbing. I said, okay, well, how often do you go clubbing? Nice question. She said, well, three, four times a week with my friends, with my girlfriends. I just like to go clubbing. I said, okay, well, I get home by 9, 10 o'clock at night. Oh, no, of course not. So what time do you get home at night? Well, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, whenever the clubs are closed, and then you know we make our way back home. She said, but I wasn't doing anything, but he always gets so mad. Well, yeah, you were. You were doing something. You're putting yourself in a position to be suspected of something that wasn't quite right. You're out there dancing with other men all night long, and while your husband's staying at home with the children, it's a stupid thing to do. The long and the short of that story is she refused to miss the clubbing and she went to after that occasion. Wasn't the first time she had a husband that wasn't. In fact, it might be worse because that's that's just a poor choice to do something like that. Don't put yourself in that position. On the other hand, we have the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And you know the reason for that, don't you? Because I am a jealous God. Here we go. The term that is used there sounds the same, Tana, at least to our ears it sounds the same, but it's spelled slightly different. It's got an extra N in it. But here, God is the one that's jealous. So by definition, we've got to understand this is not a sinful jealousy, so it is possible to be jealous and not sinful. Just like I said before, it's possible to have a reasonable jealousy. God is jealous for his own position. This is the truth that according to her own testimony caused Oprah Winfrey to abandon her Christian faith when she was either 27 or 28 years old. She can't remember exactly when. She couldn't reconcile what she knew of jealousy to a God who was this jealous. Given Oprah's subsequent cultural influence, it's too bad that her pastor way back then in her 20s didn't take the time to properly explain that passage in some excerpts to his congregation. Perhaps some of the damage that she's done in the area of spirituality in the years since to her millions of listeners could have been avoided. What her pastor could have explained is that God, as the creator, has a sovereign right to first place 
in the lives of those that he's created. That's perfectly reasonable. He should be jealous for that. And it's not evil in any way. He's jealous in the sake of honesty, for the sake of honesty. It's in our best interest to put God first. So his jealousy for his own glory and his own position is actually an act of love that's in our best interest. It would not be in our best interest to put someone in a place over God. If God would just say, well, I'm God and nobody else is, but if you want to worship something else, feel free. It's not going to offend me. It ought to offend him. It ought to offend him. It's exceedingly harmful for us to place anyone or anything in a position of priority over God. So it's reasonable for God to be jealous for his own glory. It would be unreasonable for him not to be. So there we have an example, a biblical example, of a reasonable, a non-sinful jealousy. By insisting on his own preeminence, God does us a favor. drives home the point to me that rightly dividing the word of Jesus makes bad sense. It truly grieves the Holy Spirit when people mishandle the word of truth and lead people into action. Can you imagine just that one church with that one pastor that has more accurately rightly divided the word of truth than Matt Stanley explained away that he had stumped them? Pastor Pankoff's poll would not be a high poll in the church. God is jealous, jealous for his position. There isn't such a thing as reasonable jealousy, but we also know that jealousy can be sinful, depending upon the context. Jealousy can be sinful in this way, in expressing envy over the success or advantage of another person. That's jealousy. That's a sinful jealousy. Or jealousy can be legitimate when it's an attitude of protectiveness over one's legitimate possession. Like my friend who was upset that her husband was jealous over her and the relationship she had with this other fellow. That was his, and I don't mean to be crude, but that was his legitimate possession. That intimacy was his, exclusively between them. And if someone else came in, he was right to, to defend that. He was right to be zealous or jealous for that. If he didn't, he wouldn't be much of a crowd. I mean, we've all heard of people like this. I don't know if I've ever really met anybody where they say, well, I don't mind him. to do is fine with me. Well, that, that kind of stuff might have been okay in Hippie Communes in the 60s, but it doesn't work in real life. There's an intimacy that needs to be shared and needs to be guarded by jealousy. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to observe the prosperity of David and the jealousy of Saul. And just so there's no suspense, the jealousy of Saul reflected in this passage is in no way legitimate. This is sinful jealousy, the sinfulness of which is validated by the violence that Saul seeks to execute upon David. We begin in verse 5. We covered this verse last time in some way or form, and I want to swing back and remind you of it. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. Key idea in this text. David went out and prospered, and Saul sent, set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 5 is a verse that anticipates and summarizes David's continued success as a warrior after his initial victory over Goliath. This verse almost needs to be set apart. If you're inclined to 
mark something in your Bibles. Sometimes people like to mark a little parenthesis around this verse, indicating this is a summary verse. It's not necessarily sequential from verse 4, 5, and verse 6. Actually, 6 is going to swing back around and pick up something that, that happens right after verse 4. So it's a summary verse that anticipates David's continued success as a warrior after his initial victory over Goliath. The key thing to know here is that David is successful and is well-liked by a wide segment of the population. This is the posterity that David will continue to have over the course of most of his life. It's almost never interrupted. Perhaps slightly interrupted with the whole Absalom situation later on, at least by a portion of the people. But David is a man who inspires loyalty from his enemies. This is one of the things that makes David so special. He's successful, and most people, the people that are reasonable and rational around David, are happy about that. They're drawn to it, and they're attracted by it. But there are some that are repulsed by other people's success. And that ought not to be. That's a sinful gut. And that's what we're going to see happen to Saul tonight. Saul already has had the Holy Spirit removed from him. The Holy Spirit has left Saul and come upon David. It looks as though in this early stage, at the very least, Saul is beginning to suspect that this is what has happened. He's at least beginning to suspect that maybe David is the one that's the man that's taking his place. But he doesn't like it at all. You know, one way you can gauge your own spiritual life, and I can gauge my own spiritual life, and we all have a problem with this from time to time. I've never met anybody that didn't. It's part of the human condition, I think, is that we have a difficulty really rejoicing with those who succeed. We also have a difficulty weeping for those who weep, and we get to feel for those things. But even if we can weep for those who weep, I think it's harder for a lot of, a lot of times for people to rejoice with those who rejoice. We might give the external appearance of being a little happy for them, but deep down in our soul, we think, well, I, mean, I wish I was going to be that way. I wish I was the one that was saying that kind of thing. I wish I was the one that got to go on that vacation. God knows what's really deep down in your soul. And your own spiritual health can sometimes be measured by how much you really do express genuine happiness for someone else's success and someone else's prosperity. Saul's not going to be able to do it. That's one of the fruits, I believe, of the Holy Spirit. That's part of love. Saul didn't have the Holy Spirit. Saul's spiritual life, I do believe he was a believer. We covered, I mentioned that in the early part of this study. But his spiritual life has been on a down track ever since. I think Saul's an example of someone who can be a believer and end this way. In on a down, on a down cycle. But part of the reflection of the down cycle of Saul's spiritual life is this intense jealousy. This anger. It's going to go from anger and fear and then all honesty, dread of David. Because of the success that David has had. That's one of the key things that will help us understand the rest of this chapter here. Then in verse 6, And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistines. You see why it says verse 5 is the most evident kind of summary statement. Verse 6, And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistines, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines with joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. 
but to me the other stripes I also have. Now what more can you have than the two? I really believe that he's just giving them this argument of faith. But Saul's reaction to this is unacceptable. When David returns, they have this parade, which is customary. It was customary in that time of the ancient world. The women who would return heroes with a traditional welcome, a singing and a dancing. And this welcome is for both, watch this, it's for both David and Saul. This is not exclusively directed toward David. According to Hebrew scholars, Hebrew Baird and Stanley Schuber, because of the way the Hebrews commonly used hyperbole in poetry, particularly when parallelism was involved, the song of the women may very well have lavished equal praise upon Saul and upon David. Just because to the English speaker, it might not look that way, but to them, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. That's poetry. It's, it's parallelism. And these two Hebrew researchers have come to the conclusion that this was never intended to be a slight on Saul. But since Saul is hypersensitive because he's walking way out of fellowship with God, he takes something as an insult that was never really intended to be an insult. It it, it was a compliment to both of them. And there's a lot that goes into the the literary analysis of that that I won't go into tonight. But no matter what the situation, even if it was praising David more than Saul, that's that's the way Saul takes it. He takes great offense, and he becomes angry with David i got to tell you, Saul's out of line. This was David's victory, wasn't it? Last time I looked, Saul didn't go out and fight Goliath. It was David that said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? It's David that runs out there with the five stones and knocks him dead and chops his head off and buries the head around him, and he says, he's dead after all. Because they didn't get the mantle cut and carry the head home. But it was David that did that. He deserved this approbation. Sometimes people earn it. Give it to them and be happy about it. Don't hold it back. The jealousy that Saul exhibits here is sinful jealousy. Why is it sinful jealousy? Well, remember we said that God has a legitimate right to his glory. Because he's the creator, he has a legitimate right to preeminence. That's legitimate. I mentioned that my friend, my friend's husband, had a legitimate right to that intimacy with his wife. He was jealously attempting to guard that. But here, this jealousy is sinful because Saul had no inherent right to the exclusive approbation of the people. Saul had no inherent right to the exclusive approbation of the people. So he's wrong here. He's angry. And he's jealous because someone else is being praised. One child would do something well, mom or dad praises that child, and somebody else says, hey, look at that child. And it turns a positive situation into a negative. And you have to stop and say, little Johnny, wait a minute. Now, you're wrong. You're being upset and a little creepy here. You've got a nice birthday present. Your birthday's coming soon. You'll have a birthday soon. And, and that's fine. You might stand in the corner and grab a little block, whatever it may be, because you've got to be taught that's wrong behavior. Be happy for your sister. She got a nice birthday present. Don't ruin the whole birthday party by being upset that she was blessed. And that's going to work 
what's the key to mind? And you have an examination of this. I think that's about the only way you break the key to mind. You notice that's why it's called that an examination of this. Because there's going to be, there will be degrees of being warned there. And for everything I can tell, we're all going to be happy about everybody being warned. None of us are going to be jealous in a bad way ever again. We're all going to be happy with the people that we're culturally presently and through your faithfulness and in God's favor and blessing. That's going to be a great time. So he's angry because someone else is going to be blamed. Verse 9. And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. This phrase from that day on is the marker in 1 Samuel. It tells that a major change has taken place. From that day on, it was a turning point for both Saul and David. For the rest of Saul's life, he's going to look upon David with jealous suspicion. And during that same period of time, David is not going to ever be able to trust Saul again. He's fine. There's going to be times where he's excluded from the palace and he comes back into the palace. But as much as David wants to have this relationship with Saul, it's not going to happen. Because of Saul's anger and because of his jealousy. Sinful jealousy kills relationships. came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and when he raved in the midst of the house, while David was playing the harp with his hands, as usual, and a spear in Saul's hand, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Verse 12, now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. As I said, that's the key idea, the test. We saw it in verse 5, and we see it again in verse 16. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. Verse 12, he's afraid of him. In verse 15, he's dreading him. It's getting worse for who? getting worse for Saul, not for David. David's continuing to prosper. Saul's jealousy is hurting Saul, not David. Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. So we see Saul is becoming more irrational as time goes on. As we saw in chapter 16, God sent a spirit of discontent upon Saul. And although David is ministering to Saul with the heart like he had done before successfully, it's not successful this time. Because Saul, in his jealousy, had morphed emotionally into a lifestyle of irrational fear. And he attempts twice to kill David. David's a much better man than me. I think he would have gone without saying. But I think he's a much better man than most of us because he would have only gotten one shot to kill him a single time. I think after that, I would have gotten the message, and I'd have been on down the road, got back toward Bethlehem, tending the sheep. I think I would have resigned my commission. But somehow, in the, in the course of this evening, Saul, who's in this irrational rage, takes his spear and throws it across the room at David. Excavations of the ancient world, now whether this was done for a palace or a tent is hard to say, but excavations of the ancient world don't demonstrate extremely large 
Jews. There's certainly nothing like the invasion of Caesar. And again, the Roman promulgators were just larks on this list. So you can imagine somebody throwing a spear from one end of this room to the next. David had to have some pretty good reflexes to avoid that, especially when, if you're a general guest somewhere and you actually rotate and play in the harp, it's probably not the first thing on your list that you bring somebody to a concert. Stay or exit. <laughs> that happened at any party I've ever been to. I've seen, I've seen pump cans, beer cans thrown at each other, pool cues broken over people's backs, but, but I've never seen anybody have a spear thrown at them or a bow and arrow or, or even worse. So David has some pretty quick reflexes. Certainly, we see that in this passage, the, the people called is at least becoming aware that the Spirit of the Lord is upon David and not upon him. So by the time it gets to verse 28, they said that. We know. But Saul missed it. And so failing to kill him outright, he tries a new solution that he hopes is going to result in David's death. He puts him over a large group of men and sends him out to war. What better way to kill him than let the Philistines do it? Put him in dangerous situations from a military standpoint, and maybe he'll come back dead, and then I won't have to worry about David anymore. But this backfired on Saul, and the more that the troops served with David, the better they liked him. That was the kind of man David was. In verse 12, again, Saul is afraid of David. By verse 15, which is a short period of time chronologically for us, he dreads David. He's getting worse for Saul. He's not getting any better. Then in verse 17, here's his strategy. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merib, and I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant, be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. I think that's interesting that really Saul is not expecting to fight. But he gets all spiritual with David. Fight the Lord's battles, for Saul thought, My hand, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. This is the strategy. Send him out, let him marry this daughter. I'm going to give you my daughter, but in exchange for my daughter, I'm also putting you on the front line. This is not a good deal for him. So he very tactfully is going to back out of the relationship with Saul's daughter. If the king offers you a daughter, you better have a really good reason for backing out. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. I love David's tact here. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son in law? Verse 19, so it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, but she was given to Azrael, the Maholite, for a wife. So David successfully avoids marrying this daughter of Saul. Well, even after tactfully declining the offer, Saul's going to make an attempt, one further attempt, to bring David down. He finds out that his daughter Michal, sort of gets the name Michelle, so we'll call her Michal, that's how they're related. This daughter actually likes David. Probably the only one in the family, but she she likes David, and the implication is David kind of likes her too. This is told to Saul, and he thinks, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my daughter Michal to David, and she's going to be a snare for him. What a great man. This is how he's going to use his daughter. I can't I can't believe that those of you that know daughters know how I felt when I walked my own daughter down the aisle and turned around and got up and did the service for her as well. 
his daughter was supposed to be giving some medication or something in the back room there before I went out. And I heard this harrowing thing. He's got a daughter that goes like a, his, his father used to be a preacher. I mean, he's the kind of guy he was. He's totally self-absorbed. He's totally self-centered. And it's no wonder that he's irrational and fearful and aggressive and angry and jealous. Not much of a man right now. Certainly not much of a father. So Saul approaches David and says, okay, listen, you didn't get the other daughter. That's pretty radical. But I've got a daughter that really does like you. And he commands his men to go and speak to David secretly and say, hey, listen, you know what, David? King Saul is a really impressive man. I, I think that you should really send and accept this daughter to become the king's son-in-law. Don't turn this one down. In verse 23, so Saul's servant spoke these words to David, but David said, Is it civil in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and rightly esteemed? Looks like he's still expressing his humility. This is genuine humility we're talking about here. But the servants of Saul go and they tell King Saul what David has said. Saul has another idea. Okay, you can have her, but I'm going to put a price on it. Kind of a competitive thing. Now look at the price. Verse 25, the king does not desire any dowry, so it's okay that you're poor. This is the only thing I want from you, David, a hundred portions of Philistines. You got a lot of disposable beauty in those days. I don't know, especially in the period of King Saul, the Philistines didn't typically want to give up their money. So they've got to be dead. they got to be dead to do it. So he's sending David into an enormously but into an enormously dangerous situation. What's going to happen is even funnier than that, though. He said he wants these hundred portions to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Well, no joke. You go out there and you have to kill a hundred of them, either by yourself or with a small group of men. Chances are you're not coming back. So Saul said, I've got this worked out. This is no problem. A hundred Foreskins, David's a dead man. So David said, okay, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of guy David was. Hundred foreskins, all right. I'll take that bet. Let's do it. In verse 27, look at this. David rose up and he went, he and his men, that's, by the way, thinking, this is the initial formation of David and his mighty men. These will be some of the ones that will follow him the rest of his career. Verse 27, so David rose up, he and his men, and struck down 200 men of heavy foreskins. You want 100, I'm going to make it easy for you. Then David brought their foreskins and gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him the child, his daughter, for wife. Verse 28, I've referred to this before, but let me read it now. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that his call Saul's daughter loved him, that Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy until his death. You remember how terrible all this sounds? Let's think back. First it starts because the armies of Israel are striking death for David. David does not want publicly executed. He comes, he sees what's going on, he volunteers to fight Goliath, he defeats Goliath, leads a rout of the Philistines. David is unknown. Anybody but his men. Never really had been before this day. He's unknown at that time. Within a very short period of time, his fame grows so rapidly. How many, if 